welcome to Creekside Church. We are excited for everyone to be here this morning. just want to read a couple verses from Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Just thinking about that verse 2, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And how difficult that is, right? I mean, this is, this is the world that we live in. We're constantly inundated with everything that is happening uh, here. And it's so easy to take our minds off of the things that are above. And so, you know, sometimes we sing songs that when we, when we sing the words, like on this next one that says, I will build my life upon your love. And we think, you know, God, I fall short of that, right? I can't say that that's true for me all the time, that I'm always building my life upon your love. And so as we sing a song like this, just let this be a prayer that says, Father, I want uh, to set my heart on the things that are above. I want to build my life upon your love. So first of all, I want to recognize this is Memorial Day weekend and uh, perfect time for us to re pause, reflect, uh, be thankful for those who have uh, sacrificed uh, given the greatest sacrifice uh, on behalf of our country. Um, additionally, I don't have a, a lot in the way of announcements. I do want to call your attention to a sign-up sheet that is out front. For those who are interested in helping with a summer VBS that will be happening on Sunday mornings, uh, there are a variety of ways that you can get involved. And, and I think there's a special uh, request out to those who may be uh, high schoolers uh, who would like to lend some talents and abilities and helping with uh, that younger age group. And so if you're interested in, in helping in some way with our uh, Sunday morning VBS, it'll be happening uh, during this service and in, in, during Sunday school time, just stop by the table out front, uh, talk to Debbie Short, and she can get you all the information that you need for that. So other than that, it is, is good to be here. I was uh, out of town for a couple of weekends on vacation, and it's nice to hear everyone's voices again. I miss that. Uh, so we are thankful to be back in the Word. Mark is going to be sharing with us from Matthew 16. Good morning. Welcome to Creekside Church. It's my pleasure to open the Word of God to you this morning. In Matthew 16, we've been working right through the Gospel of Matthew with few interruptions. And uh, Matthew 16 is such a loaded chapter. I have just the final eight verses of it this morning. And in just eight verses, we have Jesus for the first time announcing clearly to his disciples his plan to go to the cross and suffer and be killed and raised again. And we have in just these eight verses his plan for his disciples to live a self-sacrificial life for Christ. And in just these eight verses, we see for the first time Jesus announcing his second coming in glory. And so in just eight verses, we have quite a uh, passage this morning, and I want to frame it from the perspective of God's plan, his sovereign plan, his great, grand, and glorious plan 
for Jesus, first of all, his great, grand, and glorious plan for us as disciples, and thirdly, his great, grand, and glorious plan for the future of this world and those in it. So if you'd open with me, please, to Matthew 16, reading in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom." This passage opens up with this phrase, from that time. This marks a key turning point in Matthew's gospel. We've seen a couple of these key turning points already. You look back in chapter 4, when he was just beginning his public ministry, and in verse 17 it said, from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He launched his public ministry in chapter 4. And then we see another key turning point in chapter 12, when Time and time again, the leaders of Israel rejected Jesus' offer as their king, their Messiah, and thus the kingdom. And so he would then only speak in parables. And you remember the reason for that was that parables concealed the truth from the hard-hearted, like the Pharisees and the leaders of Israel. But it revealed and opened the truth to those who were sincere seekers and disciples of Christ. Well, we have another key turning point here in Matthew today. From that time is heading to the cross now. There's only just a few months left towards the cross. And the rest of the Gospel of Matthew is primarily focused on Jesus preparing his disciples for the events to come of his betrayal, his suffering, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. He wants to prepare them for that time. And so we look, first of all, how he began to show to his disciples, as it says, that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed and be raised the third day. He began to show these things plainly, not speaking in parables now. He's plainly revealing to them this great truth that he's going to the cross to be the Savior. See, they had this glory mindset where they were anticipating their Messiah to reign and rule with glory and deliver them from the Roman occupation. They had the glory mindset, but he's now telling them, no, I've come here to be the suffering servant of Isaiah. I'm here to be the Savior who would pay for the sins of those who believe. And there were some hints towards this before then. You look back at John the Baptist when he was baptized, and John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you know what a lamb was for? It was for a sacrifice. Jesus was to be that Lamb of God, the sacrifice. In Matthew 12, Jesus said the Son of Man would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, a veiled reference to what was to come. And in John 2, 19, he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So we had some hints 
leading up till now. But now very clearly, very plainly, he opens up the truth to his disciples that his plan, God's sovereign plan for him, is to go to the cross and be the sin bearer. And it says he must go. And I was thinking of a few reasons why it says he must go. First of all, it's God's sovereign plan for him to go to the cross. All the Old Testament prophecies about a Messiah, uh, many of them pointed to a suffering servant, one who would die and be raised again. And we had in the life of Jesus uh, prophecies. You know, you had the uh, wise men coming. Who, where is he who was born king of the Jews? And so there was all this anticipation and expectation all building up to this point. God, from God's perspective, he had to go because it was his sovereign plan from before time began that his son would be sent to be the savior of the world. It all points to the cross. And Jesus, in John chapter 12, when he's in the garden of Gethsemane, and in great agony about the prospect he was about to face, bearing the wrath of God. And he says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. He recognized even the face, in the face of the agony of the cross and the agony and the wrath of God that it was God's plan for him to come, his sovereign plan. There was no other plan. In Acts 2, when Peter was filled by the Spirit and speaking to the Mass on the day of Pentecost, he, he told them how they had crucified Jesus by lawless hands, crucified him and put him to death. And he said it was, but even though man put him to death, he said he was delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. It was God's determined purpose. It was his plan, his sovereign plan, to send Jesus to the cross, so he must go to the cross. Now, from the human perspective, he had to go to the cross because we needed a Savior. He must go to the cross because we needed a Savior. Without his sacrifice, we would be lost in our sins. Our sin was so bad that we needed the perfect spotless son of God, Jesus, to come and die a bloody death on a cross to pay for our sins. Hebrews 9.22, and I'll read it from the New Living Translation. It says, in fact, according to the law of Moses, nearly everything was purified with blood. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And it continues on in verse 26 to say, but now once for all time, he has appeared at the end of the age to remove sin by his own death as a sacrifice. He had to come. He had to go to the cross because we needed him to. He had to go to, because it was God's sovereign plan. He had to go because we needed a Savior. And thirdly, I believe he had to go from the good versus evil perspective to defeat Satan. And we see this in the next couple of verses here, verses 22 and 23. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And you see, Peter here is thinking of himself and his close relationship to the Lord, and he knew Jesus was the Messiah. He knew he was the great king to come. And he hears these things. He's still on the glory mindset, you know. He had just told him that uh, he was going to build his church, and nothing should prevail against it, not even death. And he said he was going to give them to the, key, the keys of the kingdom. And they're thinking, here it is. He's going to do it. He's going to build the kingdom. But then he goes on to say he had to go to Jerusalem and suffer and be crucified. 
And they're thinking, no, no, this is not right. And he had just, Peter had just confessed Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he heard he's going to build the church. But, and they've waited a long time for this. And now he's, they hear he's going to suffer and be crucified? No way in Peter's mind could this happen. Would this happen to him? In Peter's mind, this was a hindrance. This was a destruction to the great plan he thought was for Jesus. And then we see from Peter's high moment last week in the passage, confessing Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus commending him for that, now to one of his lowest points in his life where he has the audacity to pull Jesus aside and rebuke him for these things, saying these will never happen to you. Can you imagine how interesting it is that he, he comes from that high moment down to this low moment? And, but when you see Jesus' shocking response to here, rebuking Peter's words as satanic, you can, you can kind of understand why he said it that way because it, he had to go to Jerusalem. It was his plan, the greatest plan, the heavenly plan of salvation from the foundation of time to send his son to be the savior of the world. And it was his plan to redeem man and make him a special people for himself. And it was his plan to crush evil and destroy Satan. And so you can see why Jesus responds so harshly to him. Because Satan is the one who from the beginning has opposed and tried to disrupt God's plans. You see it in the beginning in the Garden of Eden. And he says, did God really say? And then he tempts them and they fall into sin. You see it in the days of Moses when the Pharaoh orders the death of the, the young infants. You see it time and time through the centuries when satanic influence leads the nation of Israel astray from God spiritually. And then you come to the birth of Jesus, those wise men saying, where is he who was born king of the Jews? And Herod, the great, orders the massacre of the infants to try to stop it. That was satanic. And then you see throughout his life, if they could have, men would have killed Jesus. But it was not God's plan yet. So there was constant opposition from the evil one. And so when Peter speaks these words, and I'm sure kind of unintentionally, uh, meaning to do it in the way Jesus responds, but they're so opposed to his greatest plan. And so you get a sense of why Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You're not mindful of the things of God. If you had been mindful of the things of God, you would understand that I would have to come and suffer and be crucified and raised again before the glory comes. You know, that's the test of truth. Is our word in alignment with God's word? Are we being mindful of the things of God? You know, there's one way to heaven. Jesus said it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me. No one comes to the Father but through me. And when we look at all the, quote, truths out there, even in so-called Christian churches that want to add something to the greatest work that we can't add anything to, that for by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, we are saved. It's not of our works. We can't add anything to it. And we see some teachings out there that say, oh, well, you also have to add good works to God's work. You have to be baptized along with it, or you have to pray to a human priest for forgiveness, or you take communion for forgiveness, or you pray to the dead, or serve two years as a missionary. You, you know, there's endless philosophies and ideas out there. But the truth is, does it align with God's word? Is it true? And that's the true test of it. For by grace you have been saved 
through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of yourselves, lest any man should boast. For you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. And Paul warns his hearers in Galatians 1 that if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Those were some pretty harsh, damning words to his readers, his hearers. But if there's any other message, if we add anything to the gospel, take away anything from it, if we try to change anything about the perfect plan of God, then we are being in alignment with Satan. We're not being mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And Peter here, not that he's uh, possessed by Satan. I don't think that's the case. And I don't know to what extent he's directly influenced by Satan here. But he's thinking from man's perspective. And, you know, man's perspective is so different from God's perspective a lot of times, isn't it? You know, you see in Isaiah where God declares that, you know, your ways are not my ways. The way you think about things is not the way I think about things. As high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so God's ways are different than ours. You know, we're kind of like Peter too, though. He this is certainly a moment of failure for him, and as much as I or we would like to think that we would never say anything that would offend the Lord so much as like Peter did here, you know, I was thinking, what if, what if God put up on the screen up here uh, a little replay of some of the worst low moments of our lives and some of the careless, uh, faithless things we've said in front of the church, you know, under his microscope of holiness, I think we would probably wouldn't fare too much better than Peter, would we? But you know what's great to realize is that God, Jesus, the Son of God, restored Peter. And not just here. We'll see even a greater instance of failure at the cross when he just kind of lost all hope and even denied the Lord, knowing the Lord. But every time Jesus forgave Peter, he restored Peter, he entrusted great ministry responsibility to Peter. And isn't that encouraging? That even in our weakest moments and our moments of failure that God and his love reaches out to us with open arms to heal, to forgive, to restore, to entrust ministry to us again. That's encouraging to me to see this example of Peter here, even in his failure. Well, we come to what I see as the key verse of this passage here, in the last part of Jesus' rebuke where he says, you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And the encouragement for us is to be mindful of the things of God. And I was thinking, how do we do that? How do we be mindful of the things of God? Because our perspective, the way we think about things is so different from God. I think the answer to that is in Colossians 3.16. Let me read it. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the God the Father through him. That first part there. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You see, when we fill our minds with the Bible, the word of God, when we let his words fill our minds daily, our perspective, the way we think about things, the way we view the world, the problems of the world, the way we view our lives, the way we view the plan of God for our lives in this world will be changed. We'll see things through a heavenly perspective, 
not perfectly in this life, but we'll be more aligned to him when the word of Christ is dwelling in us richly. And you notice in that verse too, it leads to a spiritual life, uh, a vibrant spiritual life of singing and doing what you do in word or deed all in the name of the Lord Jesus. You know, when we fill our minds with the word of Christ that colors our thinking, our perspective on the world, and it causes us to worship. It causes us to serve. So my encouragement is to, let, to be mindful of the things of God by letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Secondly, so we've seen the great, grand, and glorious plan for Jesus to go to the cross But we move on in this section in our passage this morning to the great, grand, glorious plan for us disciples. And just as Jesus was to come and suffer and be crucified and raised again and later on the glory, that's his plan too for us as disciples. You know, there's teachings out there that will say, I have your best life now. You know, and if we had our way with God's plan and we could make it what we wanted it to be, we would say, let's not have any suffering. Let's not have any pain. No sacrifice in this life. Let's have it good. Let the good times roll. But that's different than God's plans because his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. We read here him telling his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. And look at the economics here. It's it's kind of paradoxical. He goes on to say, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus is calling his disciples here to total commitment, total surrender to him. You know, we had to deny ourselves and our pride and our way of thinking about life when we came to God for salvation in the first place. We had to empty ourselves and come empty-handed and say, I'm, I'm empty, Lord. I'm, I don't have anything to offer you. I'm bankrupt. I need you. I need a Savior. And he's now also calling us as his disciples to continue like that, to continue to deny ourselves and take up our cross. And what does this mean uh, when we talk about self-denial and sacrifice I was thinking how denying yourself is not letting someone else pick the next movie or show to watch. It's a nice thing to do, but it's not driving slower in the right-hand lane to let someone pass. You might actually annoy someone doing that. It's not letting someone else in the family have that last scoop of ice cream or getting to lick the scoop. I don't think that's what he has. Those are nice things, but I don't think that's what he has in mind here by denying yourself. When he says taking up your cross, that's not just referring to any kind of burden in your life, any kind of common burden. It's not the hardships of life we all experience sometimes. It's not a financial hardship he's talking about. It's not having an unsaved husband or wife. It's not about having a a difficult in-law or neighbor or um, youth. It's not about having a helicopter parent, the kind of parent that hovers around all the time. That's not your cross. That's not what he's saying here. It's not about having a bad back. It's not about your chronic pain as if that was your cross to bear. That's not what he's saying here. What it is, is a willingness to put the things of God first, before all other priorities, all your other desires and pursuits and plans and pleasures of life, to put God first. Whatever he asks of us, we must be willing to do. Whatever price he asks us to pay, we must be willing to pay. Even if it brings suffering, as he says here, 
The cross, you know, he hadn't gone to the cross yet. When he told the disciples about a cross, what they pictured was the crucifixions they had seen where people had to carry their own cross beam up to a hill and die a bloody death of crucifixion. And for these disciples hearing this message, many of them would have to suffer and die for their faith. You know, if we're really his followers, we must totally surrender our lives for him and put his plans for our lives first before our own, or else we cannot claim to be a disciple of his. The word deny here means to completely disown, to utterly separate oneself from someone. It's the same word used when Peter denied the Lord later on. When we recognize our sinfulness, that helps us to see how we can deny ourselves. When we realize the greatness and the cost of salvation through the cross of Christ, we had to deny ourselves to come to him. And now he's calling us to continue to live that way. And no matter what he asks of us, no amount of suffering, no amount of sacrifice, no matter what we give up in life, could compare to what he's already done for us at the cross. When he condescended, the Son of Man condescended from the glories of heaven to become man and was willing to suffer and die in the most excruciating of ways on the cross for us. I was asking myself, well, what are God's priorities for our lives? What does he ask of us? A few things I'll suggest from Scripture. He asks us to put away sin. Colossians 3 tells us to put off the old man, to put away our sin. What sin am I holding on to and not turning over to the Lord and giving fully over to him? He asks us to worship and connect and serve with believers. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves, Hebrews 10 says. Do we put other priorities and pursuits of life ahead of the church? Or do we make it a priority to fellowship together, to worship together, to serve together? You know, I think as I look back over the past year and what we've experienced at the pandemic, we weren't able to do that as freely. And we missed it. And we longed for it. And we wanted it again. And Jesus calls us to worship, connect, and serve with other believers in the church. Are we denying what other time commitments and pursuits and pleasures that could take up all of our time so that we can make our time together as a church and serving as the church of Christ a priority, a top priority? He calls us to. He also asks us to take the gospel into all the world, teaching and making disciples and baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Matthew 28 says, do we do that? Or do we hope that there's just enough of those pastors and missionaries and evangelists to lead enough people to Christ and build the church? Well, you know, he calls every one of us to be ambassadors. He says we are ambassadors. We're all called to be a witness and testimony for Christ, you know, but in America, it's so easy, especially here, to risk nothing for Christ. You know, we could live a comfortable life and people might look at us and say, oh, they're a pretty good person, hopefully. But not that we're Jesus followers because we haven't risked that yet. We haven't told our story of faith, our testimony. You know, our brothers and sisters around the world are sacrificing a great deal just to be a Christian and have a faithful witness. You read in Voice of the Martyrs magazine about places in Nigeria and China and North Vietnam and they're persecuted. They're beaten. It's happening and it's real in our world. They understand what it means to deny themselves and take up the cross and follow Christ just to be a Christian. 
But here, do we risk anything? Do we risk anything for Christ that might lead to some possible persecution or suffering? We say, well, we don't have to worry about that here in America. We've got religious freedom. Well, I mean, 10 years ago, maybe that would have been something to laugh at, but you look at what's happened and the speed of what's happened in our government over the last 10 years, you know, and it's not too far-fetched. It's not fear-mongering to picture a day when we will face persecution for our faith, for our faith here openly in our country. The, just some of the legislation they're drafting up now, and maybe it might not pass now, but what could happen in 5, 10, 15 years from now? It's coming. And if it should come, if and when it should come, it won't just be a random horror story about a Christian baker in Colorado. You know, it'll come to our doorstep. It could come to our church, to our gender-specific bathrooms, to the intolerant truth we preach from the pulpit. You know, and what if it costs us? If it costs us, will we be faithful? What if it costs us our tax-free status as a church? What if it costs us in court over our gender-specific bathrooms? What if it costs us over preaching faithfully the Word of God, which the world sees as intolerant and hateful? What if it costs us our job and possibly our career we've worked so hard for because somebody would dare stand up here and preach the intolerant truth that God has created one man for one woman and marriage for life? That could happen. And would we be faithful? I hope I would. I pray I would. I hope I wouldn't be like Peter who swore that he would never deny the Lord and then denied him. May God help us be faithful. When we look at the economics of it here, I think it's pretty smart economics, really. He says, whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You know, if we want to save our life in this world, in this time, risk nothing for Christ. You'll have it easy in this life. Pursue everything you want to. Go out and gain the whole world. You know, when we were at the doctor for our son Benjamin recently, uh, he was asked, the doctor asked him, and he's just 10, almost 11, what's your ambition? Like, what do you want to be when you grow up, right? And uh, at first he was starting to really impress us. He started saying, well, I, I think it might be a doctor or a banker, and I'm thinking, yeah. And then, uh, and then he goes on, though, to say, or maybe working at Dunkin' Donuts or Casey's. And then we were all just kind of stunned there for a moment and started laughing. The doctor started laughing, and we're like, doctor banker, successful, Dunkin' Donuts, Casey's, maybe not so much, you know? And, you know, what's our pursuit in life? What's our aim in life? We could go out and invest all our time, all our energy, all our money into the things of this world and advancing and making lots of money, getting respect from people, making it. But in God's economics, in the end, you'll have lost it. You'll have lost believer the life you could have had in this lifetime, the pleasure of serving him for which there is great reward in the life to come. You'll find you'll have lost it if you spent your life on all those things and made those a priority over the things of God. He says, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You know, whatever sacrifice we make here on earth, in the end it will be worth it because we'll have eternal life and we'll experience its full blessings. Jesus said in Matthew 19, and everyone who has given up houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or property for my sake will receive a hundred times as much in return and inherit eternal life. 
You know, the economics of heaven are a bit different than ours, the way things work down here. You know, when we first sacrifice and lose, we stand to gain much greater reward in heaven one day. But if we just spend all our lives on the temporary pursuits and pleasures of this life, we will find we lost it in the end. What profit, he says, is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? I mean, I look at some news headlines recently. Tom Cruise sold his $40 million estate in Colorado recently. Boy, he's, uh, he's made it in this world. He's gained the world. Richard Branson, incredibly wealthy uh, his age. Now he just checks in briefly once a day to see, make sure there's no fire drills, emergencies in his business. And then he spends all day um, exercising, playing sports, just living it up, you know? And... Uh, the world looks at success as your, maybe your title, you know, you've become a doctor, good thing, but they look at you as a doctor, a lawyer, a CFO, a president, whatever it is, you name it, you have money, you're popular, you're respected, and these kind of things consume the desires of people in this world. One of my uh, former professors at Emmaus Bible College, who is now with the Lord, would say, if we selfishly use all our time and talent and money for ourselves... We will be frustrated, dissatisfied, and unfulfilled in this life and lose our opportunity to use our life for the Lord. We have only one life to use or lose for the Lord. Dr. Dave Reed said that. One life to use or lose for the Lord. Because we're called to be different. These worldly pursuits shouldn't be the Christians' pursuits, their top priorities in life. The true disciple is willing to pay whatever price faithfulness to the Lord requires. One of my ministry friends uh, that I've gotten to know over the recent years is um, a Jewish man, just a little bit older than me, on the East Coast in New Hampshire now. And he left, um, and he says, being, there's nothing more Jewish than to believe that the Jewish Messiah is Christ. I love how he thinks that way. And he was saying how he was making a lot of money in the technology business in the, in, the, in the world. And he felt called by God to leave that lucrative job, to serve God full-time, being an evangelist with open-air campaigners 10 years ago. And now he spends his time not doing technology things on the computer, making lots of money, but he spends his time going to beaches, to subways in the winter, and he says God brings him a new a group of potential converts every 10 minutes on the subway in the wintertime. And then he goes to campuses, he goes to backyards, he goes to churches and camps, etc. He's someone who's denied himself, counted the cost, and instead of treasuring up the wealth he could have continued to build on earth, he's left it behind and now he relies fully on God by faith for provision month by month. What a testimony that is. And then I, I think of my brother... Bob, and it's kind of the same deal a few years ago. He could have pursued another technology job and continued to be a successful businessman, but he felt called by the Lord and saw it as an opportunity to serve with freedom for youth. And praise God for that. He probably doesn't make as much as he used to make. You know, I'm guessing. But he counted the cost, denied himself, and followed the Lord's calling on his life. You know, I, I, there, was a, there was a young man in our church many years ago about 70 years ago, named Ed McCauley. He grew up in our Sunday school. And he felt called by the Lord to go down to the jungles of Ecuador with four other men 
and reached this unreached people group called the Aka, which meant savage. And it cost these five young men their lives. These Aka murdered them. And, and the world looked at that sacrifice they made, which was incredible because it inspired so many people to go into missions. It reached this tribe that they would have revenged, killed themselves out of existence. But now today there's over 300 believers in that tribe because of their sacrifice. But the world looked at that sacrifice and they said, what a waste for these young men with so much potential to go down and lose their lives like that. But you see, in God's economics, they gained everything. They were martyrs for Christ. And in the end, their reward is going to be great. They denied themselves and took up their cross and served Christ. We might not have to leave our job and uh, go overseas the missionary. Some of you might be called to that but most of us might not be. But on a daily basis, are we treasuring up wealth in heaven? Or are we just storing it up for ourselves on earth? Are we denying ourselves? Or are we building up wealth in heaven? We need to have an eternal perspective on this life. Life is so short. <laughs> and I was just, you know, thinking how, well, it wasn't that long ago, just a few years ago maybe, that I was in my early 20s getting married. Where did 20 years go, you know? And some of you are thinking that too. Where did the last 20 years go? Life is kind of short, you know. It's going by fast. We're not even guaranteed another year. And how are we spending our life? Are we denying ourselves, taking up a cross and following and investing in the future? Rewards? Nothing we pay in this life compares to that time of glory and reward. Romans 8 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. No matter what we suffer with, nothing in this life could compare to the glory, because we are joint heirs with Christ. Christ suffered. He died and he has entered into glory. We too who suffer with Christ will enter into glory. I was thinking the only reason we would prioritize other personal things and pleasures and comforts and ambitions and pursuits in life over what Christ has called us to is if we believe that this life is all there is. It's kind of a short-sighted view. We must have a John MacArthur quote every week. So mine this week is him saying, what could possibly be worth having during this lifetime if to gain it you would have to exchange your soul? To gain every possession possible in this world and yet be without Christ is to be bankrupt forever. But to abandon everything in this world for the sake of Christ is to be rich forever. I want to close with these last couple of verses this morning, verses 27 and 28. We've looked at the great, grand, and glorious plan of God for Jesus to go to the cross, suffer, and be crucified and raised again. We've looked at his great, grand, glorious plan for us as disciples to deny ourselves, take up the cross, and follow him, to be mindful of the things of God. And let's look for just a moment at his great plan for the future of this world. And if I get started into the end times and eschatology, we could be here another couple hours, but we're not going to do that. So I'm just going to make a few comments about the second coming because this is the first time in the Gospels Jesus mentions the second coming. He says, For the Son of Man will come 
and the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. You see, he's talking about a time when Jesus will come again with his angels and glory to this earth, and there's going to be a judgment day. And for the believer, the, the, when he examines our works, he'll see the work of Christ on our behalf at the cross, and he'll see the good works we have done that have evidenced that true saving faith in our lives because we denied ourselves and took up our cross and followed him. And he'll say, that's mine. He belongs to me. But on the day when he comes in glory with his angels and he rewards each according to his works and judgment, those who are not in Christ won't have the work of Christ on their behalf, won't have the blood of Christ applied to them, and they will be on their own. Their works will evidence that they never knew God, that they never knew Christ. We read in Revelation 19 the time when Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom on earth and destroys his enemies and the kingdom is for a thousand years and then at the end of that thousand years there's an event, a place called the great white throne judgment. Have you heard of it? Revelation 20 talks about this time. In verse 11 it says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works. But the things which were written in the books, the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to their works. Death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This is serious stuff. As I said, for the believer, we look forward to the second coming of Christ with anticipation. It's comforting and thrilling to think of the day when Jesus will return on this earth and be King of kings and Lord of lords and reign with a righteous rule the likes we have never seen before. It'll be a wonderful, awesome time. But for the unbeliever, it'll be a day of horror. Uh, when, the, when the great white throne judgment day comes, and each one is judged according to his works, and, and they, those who are not written in the book of life have to give account of themselves to God, their, judge, their works will condemn them to an eternity apart from God. There will be a reckoning day. People don't like to think about that. They don't like to think that there could be a day when there is an almighty God who will hold them accountable for how they live their lives, but there will be a day, and it is coming. You know, scoffers can say, oh, things are always the same ever since the beginning, Second Peter 3 tells us. But he says, hey, let me remind you of something. Everything was the same also from creation until the worldwide flood came and destroyed the world. That world then perished. So too, there's coming a day of judgment and of fire when everything seems to have continued the same for centuries. But the Lord's not slow concerning his promise. He's just long-suffering. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's why he's waiting. But there is a coming day of judgment. And the call to those outside of Christ is to repent while there's still time, while it's still today. Your life may be required of you tomorrow. Now, the disciples had just taken a beating here in Jesus' message because they were, had that glory mindset. 
reigning and ruling and building the kingdom right then and there. But he talked about the suffering and the crucifixion, and it was kind of a downer. But he, but he wants to assure them that he is coming in glory, and so he closes in verse 28 saying, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. You know, maybe the thought of him coming in his glory one day would have been met with a little bit of doubt and skepticism after what they were hearing about the cross. But he's assuring them, he had already just told them that the gates of hell can't prevail against his church. He's going to build his church and nothing can stop it, not even death. And he said, just to assure you guys here that I am coming again in my glory, I'm going to let a few of you, a little spoiler for next week, Peter, James, and John are the three, they get to see a glimpse of his glory, of his second coming glory. We'll see that next week and and, and just six days after this, he's going to reveal Uh, a glimpse, a preview of a second coming glory to these disciples to assure them that, yes, indeed, I am coming again. And we say with John, even so, come soon, Lord Jesus. (laughs) William MacDonald in his commentary writes, the only way to have a successful life is to look forward to that glorious time when Jesus returns, decide what will really be important then, and go after it with all your strength. I like that. Look forward to that glorious time when Jesus returns. Decide what will really be important then and go after that with all your strength. Whatever time we have left on the earth, brothers and sisters, let's go after it. Let's deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. Whatever price we pay here will be worth it. There'll be great reward for the believer. Let us not fall into the hands of a wrathful, angry God. Apart from Christ, we need the blood of Christ. We come now to this time of communion And how fitting it is to think about that time on the cross when Jesus paid it all. He paid it all. All to him I owe. We must surrender all because we owe everything to him. And so we say, thank you, Lord. We take the bread as the little wafer on your seat there and the juice. And we say, thank you, Lord, for your body on the cross, giving your life for me on the cross. Thank you for the blood that was shed to bear the wrath of God, to pay that price that must be paid. He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. May we be mindful of the things of God. May we live in anticipation of the return of Christ and be willing to sacrifice just as he sacrificed, willing to serve just as he served. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time this morning to look in these eight verses, uh, incredible truths, Lord, uh, of your coming crucifixion and resurrection to these disciples, of the ultimate high calling on us as disciples to deny ourselves and everything else that this world has to offer us to surrender all and to follow Jesus as our Savior and Lord, knowing that all the suffering and sacrifice we may have in this life leads to glory with Christ in the future. And Lord, just thank you so much for all you've done for us. We just praise the name of Jesus for the greatest sacrifice of all. We can't add to it. There's nothing we could do in this life that could add to that sacrifice he made for us. Take the bread and juice now to honor you, to say we love you, Lord, to say, Lord, we owe you our lives. Help us, Lord, to Be mindful of the things of God and not the things of men now as we go in Jesus' name.